Hey everyone, it's Marvin. Uh, this episode of Books and Boba is brought to you by Audible Theatre Presents Good Enemy, a world premiere play by Audible Theatre emerging playwright Yilang Lu, directed by Obi Award winner Che Yu, about a father who learns that closing the door to his past means shutting his daughter out. Good Enemy deftly weaves together the stories of two generations of two countries, the US and China, both during times of sweeping social changes, exploring the power of human connections. This smart, thrilling, and hopeful show features a road trip across America, theatrical flashbacks to 1984 China, action, suspense, secrets, discussions of generational trauma, and the bonding power of TikTok. The show starts OB Award winner Francis Ju, who was previously seen on Broadway in Pacific Overtures as well as soft power at the public. Previews for the show have already begun at the Manetta Lane Theater in New York City, and it will run for a strictly limited five-week engagement through November 27th. Tickets are available now at goodenemyplay.com. And for Books and Bubble listeners lucky enough to be in New York at this time, we have a special treat for you. If you use the code BOBA25, um, that's B-O-B-A-25, all caps, you'll be able to unlock a special discount on your tickets. Uh, specifically, if you purchase tickets through November 5th, you'll be able to unlock $25 tickets um, using the code. And if you purchase afterwards, you'll unlock a 25% discount. Again, the play is running through November 27th at the Manila Lane Theater in New York City. You can buy tickets at goodenemyplay.com. And don't forget to use the special Books and Boba discount code BOBA25, all caps. And if you do manage to catch this play, please let us know what you think on our Gurry's forums. Thanks again to Audible Theater Presents Good Enemy for supporting Books and Boba. And now, on with the show. Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And on this episode, we have a, it's not an author chat, but a translator chat. Um, our guest is Anton Hur, the English language translator for Beck Say He's I Want to Die, But I Want to Eat Duck Bookie. A, um, is it a memoir? It seems like it's like a combination it's- of things. Yeah, it's a memoir and also a self-help type of book and also a bit of motivation and gives insight into uh, mental health. And um, it's it's a very interesting book. Uh, Pekse, he is a millennial. Uh, she's a social media director for a company and uh, she goes to a therapist to get help, get treatment for her dysthymia which is a persistent depressive disorder. So the book is very interesting because there are like transcripts from her sessions. So it reads like a script. And we talked to Anton about uh, pretty much like what the process was like, because this is our first time talking to a translator. We don't know like how they get the, the job pretty much and what that job entails other yeah. than just translating because that's a very tricky job <laughs> I, I feel like yeah there's a lot that goes into translation and you know we just read another translated work for our last book club pick and just so much thought needs to go into not only how to translate this 
work from one language to another, but how to like maintain the author's voice because so much of reading is also subjective. And it was really fascinating to hear Anton, Anton's very um, unfiltered opinions and thoughts about the landscape of translating, um, who gets to translate, and how he's been able to make a career out of translating um, Korean works. So, um, yeah, I had a lot of fun. We should do this more often. We should interview some non-author people in the world. We, I mean, Riri, you've been saying this for a long time, but um, we really do want to talk to more translators, more publishers. And yeah, um, I like this new direction that we've embarked on. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely out of our usual comfort zone. But I had a great time talking to Anton, and I hope you guys enjoy our conversation. All right, so we are here with Anton Herr, the winner of a Penn Translates grant and who was long listed twice for the 2022 International Booker Prize for his translations of Bora Chung's Cursed Bunny and Sangyong Park's Love in the Big City. And we are here to talk about his latest translation work, I Want to Die But Eat Tteokbokki, a memoir by Peck Se-hee. Welcome to the show, Anton. Hi, thank you for having me, Rira. So, from what I understand, you're not part of the Korean diaspora. You grew up as a third culture kid and have been living in Korea for a number of years. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your experience as a third culture kid? Sure. Um, so uh, I did I did a separate podcast about this recently and um, discussed it extensively there. But basically, I think uh, a lot of people don't know what a third culture kid is, and I'm, I'm sure in this podcast they do. <laughs> but um, <laughs> just for those who don't in the audience, um, it's basically someone who uh, basically grows up in another country, but they are not uh, they are not trying to assimilate into that country. So they're part of they're not part of their uh, first culture, which is where they're born or where their parents are born. They're not part of the second culture where they are physically present or resident. But they're part of a quote unquote third culture where um, it's basically its own world with its own rules and kind of its own norms. And it's it's a very internationalist space. And I think, yes, um, my 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 father worked for a Korean government concern. Uh, he was not a diplomat because TCKs in Korea like make a huge distinction between, oh, your father is a diplomat. Oh, your father is not a diplomat. It's so stupid. And uh, he worked for a government concern. I make it sound like he was a spy. He was not. <laughs> he worked for an <laughs> economic concern. Um, and uh, I grew up in Sweden, Hong Kong, Ethiopia, Thailand. And uh, I would the way that I grew up was I would I would I would spend you know a couple of years in Korea, a couple of years overseas, and then come back to Korea and spend a couple of years in Korea, and then go back overseas. And so it's also so that's also what's different from growing up, for example, as diaspora immigrant, because normally when you are an immigrant, you move once when you're young or before you're born. And um, and then you stay in that country uh, for however long. So so I had a ver- I have a very um, international upbringing, a very bilingual upbringing, because I would attend English language schools and international schools overseas. And uh, but ever since I came, ever since I graduated, uh, an inter- international high school in Thailand. I have been living in Korea. I'm like, I'm 41 now. So I've been living in Korea for like over 30 years now. 
And uh, I think, and 21 of those years were continuous. <laughs> so all of my adult life, I've been Korean and living in Korea. Wow. So you went to ISV. I went to ISB. Yeah, my cousins went there actually. Um, my, one of my cousins oh, awesome. probably was there at the same time you were because she's about about your age as well. Um, mm-hmm. We'll probably talk about that afterwards, but that's cool. Oh my God, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. It's a great school. It's a great school. Um, my husband will never let me forget how, like we went to Phuket once um, a couple of years ago and uh, we were visiting some friends on a very beautiful resort. And then I was looking around. And I was like, oh, this place reminds me of ISB. <laughs> and then my <laughs> husband's like, what? <laughs> so uh, he like he has this idea that I grew up like a princess. And um, I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was hilarious. Yeah. Well, I feel like our conversation is pretty timely because our last book club pick was a translated Korean novel. We read The Whole by Heung Pyeon, which was translated by Sora Kim Russell. And this is our first time on the show where we are talking to a translator. So can you tell us about how you became a translator and what do you actually do? What does the job entail? I read this study that was conducted here in Korea on Korean translators and interpreters, well, mostly interpreters. And um, when the when the translators were asked this question, they all said the same thing. They said, oh, I became a translator by accident. And what this means is that, I mean, as, you know, as diaspora Asians especially will know, is that um, when you are growing up bilingual, as many uh, diaspora children do, they tend to become translators and interpreters for their families. And so this is basically what happened to me, too. So, my, I mean, my dad speaks excellent English to this day, but um, my mother, you know, does not. And so I would interpret for my mother. And that very naturally kind of like segued into um, doing it for, you know, money. Not a lot of money in the beginning, but uh, there's always, always, always a demand for uh, English and Korean interpretation and translation because Korea is a client state of the American empire. And so (laughs) as a client state, we need to be able to communicate in our master's language. <laughs> and so, um, so there's always a demand for, for English interpreting and translation in Korea. And so I really just like fell into it. Um, my brother works for Samsung and he, uh, when I, when I was about to graduate college, I asked him, Hey, so should I work for Samsung too? And he said, you know, you could be the working for a chable. The thing about working for a chable is that you can be the king of the rats but you would still be a rat. <laughs> and that advice affected me at a visceral level. And so I was like, oh, okay. Uh, and, then he, and then he was like, why don't you just build up, you, you know, you have a translation practice. Why don't you just build up your client list uh, instead of, you know, getting a job at a company? And I said, oh, maybe I'll do that. And so and that's what I did. And I've never had any other job really out of college. Even during college, I had this job. And ever since I was like, I think the first time I was paid for translation was when I was like 12 or something. So I'm a 41-year-old man who's had the same job since he was 21, like like 12, which is (laughs) very lazy, but what have you. Um, Yeah, but I wanted to ask, like, you studied writing and literature, correct? Well, I studied literature. I I never studied writing. Um, And again, this is something that the literati kind of like make a whole thing out of, but... Uh, <laughs> <Literati>. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> uh, but I, I can't study uh, 
Uh, I can't say. Well, I can. I could, I guess, go to a creative writing school in Korean here in Korea. But I don't know. It's never really. There are just so many other things that I that were just like grabbing my attention, and I was much more interested in studying other things that I never studied writing. I did study literature eventually, but I majored in law and double majored in psychology in undergrad, and then. Um, and then I took an open university degree in French and then I, uh, and then I went to grad school in literature, but like at a much later stage of my life when I was like 33 years old, I think. Yeah. So, um, literature came like studying literature came a bit later. So how did you get into translating like whole books? Yeah. So literary translation, you can't fall into. It's very deliberate. Well, maybe at some point that you can fall into, like you guys mentioned, um, Penny Young's The Hole translated by Sora Kim Russell. So from what I understand, Sora Kim Russell does not go around selling her translations. People give her work. And she's really the last translator who to whom this could happen because all the translators that come after her, we have to go out and get our own work. So if you want to be able to translate a work, a, a book, then you have to go out and get the rights for the book and then go out and sell the book to a foreign publisher and then <laughs> promote that and translate that book and then promote that book. Like you have to do all of these things as a literary translator. And that's basically what I kind of realized around 2000 and I guess 18 um, after my first two books came out, like nothing happened. And so I was like, Oh, I have to do, like, I have to go out and get my own work. I can't rely on work to continually come to me. I thought once I was out of the valley of death for emerging translators, then I would get more work, but that just was not the case. So I have to. I had to learn how to be very proactive and very networky and very um, pleasant in person because I'm really not. <laughs> I'm very unpleasant in person. And so, so I had to learn how to do all that um, and be all of that. So. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, and, you know, it's, it's very complicated. Like the submission process, translations are sold very differently from the way non-translations are sold in Anglophone publishing. The UK is very different from the US. Um, and there are all these like hidden opportunities that you have to know how to look for. And I had to learn how to do all of that. And now I, I try to, I try to pass this knowledge on as much as possible because like a lot of like, for the most part, no one really bothered teaching me how to do this. And I think it, that's, it's a shame that, you know, publishing is already so gatekeepy and so um, opaque that I feel like it needs to be more transparent. You know, we need to be able to pass on this institutionalized knowledge because uh, I mean, ideally we should burn it all down and start over, but <laughs> that's not going to happen in my lifetime. So, um, so this is the next best thing to to drive a wedge into the system as much as possible with information. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you turning on your pleasant voice to talk to us on this podcast. <laughs> um, but that's wild. That's, I didn't realize that being a translator involves like essentially running your own, like publishing, publishing company, <laughs> mm -hmm. like yeah, getting it, the rights mm -hmm. and everything. That's so complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now it's like that. I mean, again, like, like Sarah Kim Russell is like, I don't know, like three, four years older than me. Like she's not that much older than me, but 
really the translators who came in that era, like up to, you know, the naughties even, like they were able to, because there are so few of them, um, and they would be, you know, foreign agents or foreign publishers, like when they needed a translator, they would, they would go to LTI Korea and LTI Korea would be like, oh, like, you know, here's Sora Kim Russell and, you know, and then connect them and give them a book. <laughs> but that really does not, ha- and that has never happened to me. Like the Literary Translation Institute of Korea has never given me a book to translate. Right. So how do you pick the project you want to do then? Is it just, um, this book is doing pretty well in Korea. Let me see if I can get the translation right still. Like, do you approach the authors, the publishing companies, or how do you choose your projects? Um, those are two separate questions. Like, how do I choose and, and then how do I approach? So how do I choose? It has to. It just has to be really, really compelling. Uh, like, I, I have to, a very good indicator is that if I hear the English immediately upon reading, then I'm like, oh, this is, this is a good match for me, for my translation voice and for uh, my translation brain. Uh, and uh, I, I could kind of like see how it can work. So many translators, I feel like they just, I don't know, to them, translation is a very academic exercise. And I feel like that's fine if you're an academic or if you're doing it for school. But if you want to do it as a job, as a profession, then you really have to think about what the reader is going to think and how the reader is going to feel. And um, I have a lot of faith in my ability as a reader because that's the number one thing that I'm trained in. Like, I don't really consider myself as a this is going to sound so weird, but like, I don't really consider myself as a writer or a reader. I, I uh, write or a translator. I consider myself as a reader. Like that's my main identity. And I feel like if you ask me like, what is the one thing that you're really good at? I say, oh, I'm good at reading. Not, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty good at translating, but like, I'm really great <laughs> at reading. And so, um, so when I read a book, uh, I kind of, I get the feeling that, oh, this is why this book, I, I just, there are these moments where I know this is why this book was written. And I can make it sound like the way it sounds like in English, because I know I have a reading for this book. Um, I can also translate things like Google Translate translates things, like translate them without really understanding it, because I could just you know put put words in one set of words into another set of words. But you know, uh, like readers can tell that oh, you're you're BSing right now. Like <laughs> readers are not stupid. So Re- readers can I tell ch- if you're using Papago and <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Even if you edit all of that, like edit Papago and edit Google translate, like a good reader will, will be able to, I mean, even a bad reader would be like, Oh, there's something soulless about this. Like you, you, there's something that that hasn't been captured here. So you can you really can't get away with that. Yeah. I mean, I always wonder when I'm reading translated works, because the really good ones, they read like they aren't translated. And, you know, how much of that mm-hmm. is, like, how much of that is you as a translator kind of translating those, like, cultural or, like, colloquialisms? And how much of that is you interpreting the author's intent? I mean, a really fun game. And so is that, you know, Tomb of, Tomb of Sands, which um, uh, translated by Daisy Rockwell, written by Kitanjali Shri. And the book that actually won the Booker Prize this year. Uh, so that that book is kind of like the quintessential example of what you just said. Like if you read that book, it's, it's so beautifully translated. Like, of course it won. Uh, when you read that book, um, 
the translation is so beautiful and so witty and like punny in places. You're like, is this what it sounds like in the Hindi? Like it makes you really curious about the the source because like how did she how did she pull these like Englishisms out of a completely different language? Like it's not even a romance language. Like how does she do it? So um, yeah, there are, there are books like there. I mean, you can just tell if something is like a really good translation even if you don't read the source language. That's totally like the case and. Uh, I think a really good case for that is is this year's winner. Um, so I want to ask, like, since you say that you are a reader first, um, I'm guessing that you read "I Want to Die But Eat Tteokbokki" uh, in its entirety in Korean before you, um, I guess, auditioned for for the job. Um, like, so this what- this book is un- this book is unusual because this is one of the one of the like now that I'm a little more quote unquote famous, like people know who I am uh, in the publishing world, at least uh, this book was actually like sent to me. Oh, so nice. Like, yeah. So that was like a very nice, like, oh, now I'm a translator kind of moment. And it's happening more frequently now, especially after the whole Booker Prize thing. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful to the Booker Prize judges. Um, but yeah, this book was sent to me from uh, by the by the English publisher, by the UK publisher, actually. And of course, but of course I've read the book because, you know, it's, um, it's such a huge bestseller in Korea. And, uh, and one of my, one of the things I studied in college was psychology. So I'm very, very interested in psychological narratives and whatnot. But the problem with this book and why I did not pursue publication was the fact that it was nonfiction. And until really this book, it has to be said. Um, nonfiction was really not something that uh, Anglophone publishers were interested in coming out of Korea. Um, for, I have pu- tra- published a nonfiction book before this, which is Hwang uh, uh, Seokyung's memoirs called The Prisoner from Verso Books. But Hwang Seokyung is a novelist and he writes very novelistically. So we can kind of get away with it. And, you know, Svetlana Alexandrovich, um, like, like, I think she won the Booker Prize or the Nobel Prize or something, maybe both. And so like, so nonfiction writing was kind of slightly on the uptick at the time. And so we managed, so they, like Hong Seung-yong's agent, managed to sell that book. But I think this is really the first, um, it's really the first Korean nonfiction bestseller of its type. Like no Korean nonfiction book in translation has done as well as this book. So for me, I couldn't imagine translating it. Like after, after I did this one, I was like, oh, maybe is, is Korean nonfiction like having its time. So like now I have, I'm now I have another nonfiction book coming out next year. And I also, I'm trying to pursue, um, there's this wonderful, uh, trauma book on trauma, like uh, from a Lacanian perspective by a Korean Lacanian uh, psychoanalyst. And it came out after the Sewol disaster here in Korea. And, uh, I, it really helped me process kind of like my my grief and uh, I really want to to translate that into English because there's a lot of grief floating around in the Anglosphere as well <laughs> because of the pandemic and whatnot and so yeah so we're very excited that that a nonfiction book could be this successful yeah we always talk about because Rima and I we've uh, we've done a lot of work also in the Asian American like entertainment space it's always like it takes one and then all of a sudden 
there's an example of this in industry now, and now everyone wants to do its one. And we don't know how long, you know, like for example, Korean nonfiction will be the it thing in publishing. But we applaud everyone who's like getting their work in now because this is this is a time when I guess it's top of mind. And you know, I wonder how much of this is also just like the BTS effect, right? Like something that I, I don't know which instance of like the Korean wave in America this is, but this is like one of those times and it's like being spearheaded by like, you know, these dudes who everything they touch, everyone wants to read or or do or or see, right? Absolutely. This book was sold by Namjoon. <laughs> like, I did not sell this book. <laughs> Namjoon was the one who sold this book. Uh, Namjoon of BTS, uh, also known as RM. Um, so, yeah, it's it's kind of funny because I have never believed that K-drama or K-pop uh, or, or K-movies, like, I have never believed that the success in those spheres spills over into literature because it has never been proven the case. This book is really the first, I want to die, but I want to eat Dokoki by Pekse, translated by me. <laughs> this book is the first case in which K-pop directly influenced, um, directly influenced uh, K-literature. And oh, I hate those terms. Um, but <laughs> not that, not that BTS is K-pop, because you know, BTS is a whole, is so extraordinary a, that they're actually it's a different a, level yeah, yeah it's like a different it's like a, it should be a separate category it should be like k-drama k-pop k-movies k-literature bts <laughs> because they are they're really operating at a different level so this is i think the first kind of case where synergistically the the book like it's spilled over into the book market but we really haven't been seeing in practice we really haven't been seeing like the rise of Korean literature coming from the rise of, uh, you know, Korean drama, for example, because, you know, the reality is that there may be 10 books translated a year into English, which is, you know, an absurdly low number. I think there are more Netflix dramas that are Korean that come out in a year than there are Korean novels that come out. So we still have a long, long way to go. I feel like the majority of translated Korean novels that I've seen in the American mainstream literary market are actually written by women, uh, like The Vegetarian by Hong Kong and uh, Kim Ji-young Born 1982 by Cho Nam-ju. Um, so like, I just want to like hear your personal take. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that so many Korean novels and Korean books written by women are doing so well overseas? This is absolutely the case. So Kyung Suk Shin is also the first and so far only New York Times bestselling author. She's a woman. She also won the Man Asia Literary Prize, which is, of course, everyone knows is the precursor to the International Booker Prize. So um, like Kyung Suk Shin was kind of like joking, like when she, when she was congratulating me this year, she was like, oh, I wish like you'd been nominated for one of my books. And I'm like, Ma'am, you've already won the Booker Prize. Like, why are you even like paying attention to any of this? And like, and she laughed. But, but yeah, it's definitely women who uh, who are like at the forefront. Like, not only in terms of artistry and you know the like the like the edgiest books are all written by women in Korea, but also in terms of sales. And uh, I think a large part of it is that uh, just like it is in the Anglosphere. Um, the majority of readers are women uh, in Korea. I think I read some kind of some kind of survey where they determined that the average Korean reader is a woman in her twenties or thirties, 
college educated, and she reads for about uh, 30 minutes before bed. And so that is like our battleground. <laughs> and um, so, uh, so yeah, not only are, you know, the not only are women the people who read books the most, it's also, you know, women, women writers are just, you know, edgier and much more interesting. And I think it's because women, there's probably a, a confluence of factors, but if you were to ask me which you are, then I would say like, it's of course, like Korea has like one of the worst uh, gender equality indexes in the OECD. I think the worst, like even worse than Japan, which is saying a lot. Um, it has one of the worst gender, in, uh, and it has so much gender-based violence. Um, like for example, even in supposedly uh, discriminate, like a uh, disasters, like um, like uh, the recent Itaewon disaster. Like I think like something like eighty-eight out of one hundred the one hundred fifty-two people who died were women, and that is like a disproportionate representation of of women, like in disasters and like you know in deaths and it's just really not a great place for women to to live frankly even i as a man cisgender man can see that and so i think uh it kind of like i don't want to say like adversity creates good literature but i do want to think that um literature is really about like thinking about like you know how you fit into your society because you have to use language and language is a social tool at the end of the day. And um, even though you try to be as apolitical as possible, like it creeps in. And so I think like, and Korea has also had like, has a very long tradition of, of literary women. Um, and like when Hangul was invented, like when our letter system was invented, like another word for Hangul was Amkur, which means women's writing. And because like, uh, it was it was a derogatory way of saying like oh Hangul is beneath like you know the more classical Chinese writing because you know it's for like you know people who are not educated and so women would like write like pass on like novels to each other by copying novels into Hangul like by hand by brush calligraphy and like they would and there's a that's like a whole genre of of novels in in Korea so, so they're like the first webtoons or something basically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, and so or web novels, I guess, and um, yeah. So it's um, we 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 have a long tradition, and social conditions make it conducive uh, for the production and for the consumption of literature for women. And um, Hangul is just so easy to read. Like Korea has a ninety nine point nine 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 percent literacy rate, or something like that. So yeah, I think uh, it's a it's a confluence of factors that make women so successful in literature. Uh, yeah, you mentioned social conditions, and I just can't help but think that I Want to Die But Eat Topoki did so well because, you know, it dives into mental health and it's such a taboo in Korea. And I feel like that's the reason why it resonated with so many uh, Korean women readers, because I don't know, like, maybe it's because we have a very repressed culture and for for a lot of women it's like chama like endure and like don't bring shame onto your family and i just feel like i want to die but itopoki was i don't know it it was just like a conversation starter like it was something new that people hadn't seen before mm-hmm. i mean for like on the ground it doesn't really feel like it's that much of a taboo anymore um like, you know, my dad 
took Prozac. He may still take Prozac. Um, and like on like and the kind of like the narrative that we're always being kind of shoved down our throats as Korean translators is that oh it's so like like you know oh arranged marriages oh like Koreans don't talk about mental health and oh like like there is this uh, there are no gay people in Korea like there are so many like these like you know imposed narratives from from the white gays that we are constantly battling and this book kind of like for, if anything it's, it counters it because uh Pixay is just so extraordinarily extraordinarily honest and courageous in writing this book the uh, she does mention that it is kind of a uh, society does is reluctant to talk about uh is talk about to, to talk about mental health issues but i want to emphasize that she is writing in korean to a korean audience and publishing in korea she means like within the context of korea not within the context of the world like she, i don't think she knew that this book would be published and translated into 20 languages like when she wrote it so we have to hold that in context like korea is not especially more like silent or taboo about mental health than for example america is like i don't believe that's the case i don't think americans go around talking about mental health and you know telling their bosses about you know how depressed they were and how many pills they take like i don't think that happens in america either so i think that's what she means when she talks about it in this book and it's very, very dangerous to essentialize uh, that into, oh, it's like taboo in Korea because <laughs> plenty of people talk like it's it's a it's a huge topic in Korea, um, mental wellness and so on. So it's, we can't really say say that yeah. anymore. It's, yeah, yeah. I wonder how much that is just also for us as in terms of like Norwegian and I are both diaspora Asians. Like the culture kind of freezes, right? Like so, like how much of us as Asian Americans our assumptions of the whole man is based on like cultural norms that are 10, 20 years old too. Right. Because, you know, for us, I'm not speaking for all these Americans, but like for a lot of us talking about therapy and things like that is tough with our parents because they kind of get stuck in the way that they remember their cultural norms from like a country that mm-hmm. they have lived in for like 20 years. Right. I totally understand that on the other side of that though, that's why Korean American food is like so good. because they understand what korean food is supposed to taste like uh before the 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 sole palate was is so ruined now like i think if korean americans who immigrated at your parents' age like if they come back to seoul and they like taste the food they're like what happened (laughs) um because it's everything is just so spicy and salty um but if you go to if you go to america and you know uh even younger korean chefs like the korean american chefs like because they learn from their parents like the Korean food, like the best Korean food in the world is now in America. <laughs> That's because like, because they, it's, it's more authentic than it is in Korea, which is a really funny thing to say. And I may, I may get canceled for saying it, but like, you know, but it's the truth. I mean, it's so there, that's kind of like, I, I understand what, what you mean by that because, um, because it does manifest in other ways. Yeah. 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 And also this book came out in 2018 and, you know, Korea moves Korean society moves very quickly. Uh, it's it's very dynamic. So, um, yeah, I feel like the conversation about mental health has definitely, you know, gone gotten more spotlight than it than it used to about even like five years ago. Um, but Peck's memoir is written in a very interesting format. It's almost like a script because she transcribed her therapy sessions, which, you know, if I was her therapist or a uh, psychiatrist, I would kind of be mortified 
because it's like, why, why are you recording me? Like this could go wrong in so many ways. Um, but reading this in English, it made me wonder what the tone was in Korean. And I just want to ask you, like, how did you go about capturing the dialogue and making it as accurate as possible to the Korean dialogue? That's such a great question. And I wish more interviewers just asked this question because they kind of assume that when we translate, like, we don't think about tone or voice at all. But it's actually the only thing we think about. Because once you have the tone down and once you have the voice down, translating the book becomes very easy. Once you kind of triangulate where this should go, then you're like, oh. So what I did was I first, um, I, I had, I've been coming, I had just come off uh, translating Love in the Big City. And then I went right into drafting this translation. Um, and uh, I was workshopping I Want to Die, But I Want to Eat Tohoki with my translation collective, Smoking Tigers. And uh, my very esteemed colleague, uh, Soje, mononym Soje, uh, they gave me this really interesting comment about my manuscript. They were like, you know, like the translation is very accurate, quote unquote, and whatnot. But I, there's something very flip about her tone. And I'm like, oh, what do you mean? It's like, oh, I don't know. She just seems like very ironic and sarcastic and trying to be funny. But, she, but I don't think she really is like that in the book. And then I took Sojay's comments to heart. And then I kind of like looked at it again. I was like, oh, like it is kind of, I did make her too, uh, like, you know, too, like, too, too funny, basically. And uh, Sojay's theory was that it was because I just came off of Love in the Big City. <laughs> and that, and then that narrator is very, very flip. And it's like, oh, I think your, your previous work is, is um, invading your current work. And apparently this happens to Meryl Streep. Because if you ask Meryl Streep, like, isn't it hard doing all of those accents? Meryl Streep's answer is, oh no, it's, um, it's not hard doing the accents. It's hard when I'm moving from one job to another and the accents are similar. Like if she does a Danish accent and then she has to do a Swedish accent, like it's hard making that transition. Uh, but if it's like, you know, uh, she has to do, God forbid, a Caribbean accent <laughs> right after doing a Danish accent, then, you know, then it's then it's easier uh, in theory. So, yeah. Um, so for me, it was uh, I was like, oh, I have to I have to tone down the flipness. I have to make it very. I feel like she's very subdued in the the like the um, like the the. The, the the patient character I don't think she's ever named the patient character is very subdued in the book and the the psychiatrist is actually kind of like let's cut through all the BS like they're very tell it like it is and you know they're very refreshing and shocking even and so I wanted that contrast and that dynamic and uh, hopefully that's that's what I achieved with the book but yeah really with with uh, Sehi's writing though. Um, Sehi uh, is so precise and so clear. And I know that it looks like, you know, she did nothing but transcribe her therapy sessions. But to me, it didn't occur to me when I was reading it. But when I was translating it, I could see like, oh, a lot of editing went into this in order to make things more clear, in order to make things clean. Because, you know, they in the Korean, they talk in an extremely clear and clean way, like in no way that... A, that normal Koreans talk because I think Koreans are really bad at speaking um, correct Korean and Koreans tend to be really bad at 
writing correct Korean because you can have an English writer like write perfect English, like a, like a paragraph of perfect English, but no Korean writer can write a paragraph of perfect Korean unless they're a special kind of linguistics professor. And the only people who speak perfect Korean in Korea in the world, in fact, are television announcers because they are like trained to death. They're trained like K-pop idols to speak perfect Korean. But most Koreans you meet on the street, even professors, like they don't speak perfect Korean. Like they make mistakes all the time. But there's none of that in this book. <laughs> it's just very clear. And it's very, um, I mean, it's because Korean is such a highly regulated language that it's a very normative language. So uh, there, is, there is such a thing as, as correct Korean, whereas it's very prescriptive, whereas English is kind of, is more like an English dictionary is more descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's like, oh, this is, you know, how people are spelling things these days. Like that's the job of a dictionary in English, whereas a dictionary in Korean, it's like, spell it like this. Otherwise you're wrong. <laughs> so it's a very different vibe for, for both languages. But yeah, that was the tone that I was trying to get. And it was really Sehi that I was kind of like found a bit tricky with because I was coming off of a different book. But otherwise that's my fault, not, not Pixie's fault. Did you have an open line with her to um, talk about the book or is it these like gave you the books that translated now? Yeah, people always ask me this question about my authors, but and they're always like scandalized by the fact that I actually never talk to my authors when I'm working on their books. And it's only when I really, really, really have to ask something that I bother them. I consider it bothering them. And I also feel like it's a bit insulting to the author um to be like oh i don't understand something in your book like to me that's something that's very embarrassing to admit again i consider myself an excellent reader like a very good reader so for me if, if i don't understand something in the reading that oh there's something wrong with me like i'm sure i've I, it happens and i've mistranslated things and misread things but i feel like whatever faults i have as a reader are overwhelmed by uh whatever positive qualities that I have as a reader and a translator. But, but technically, like if I ever had something that I wanted to think about with this book, then, then I could contact her. But the only issue that came up was, so Korean uh, pronouns, as you know, are not gendered, like they're all genderless. And so um, she talks about like the people that she's going out with in the book. And there, there are two major people, like one, uh, one who like, like she breaks up with and then the other who um, she then gets into a relationship with after that breakup. And it's never specified that, you know, they're boyfriends. And so I'm like, Oh, why don't we just run with this and go completely genderless when it comes to the, and so I did. And, um, and the editor was completely fine with this. And then I think in the copy editing stage or something like fairly late in the stage, I was like, oh, I, I just changed everything to boyfriend and him, he, him, because I was like, oh, I don't want to have this conversation with like, like, I don't want this to be like a controversy and just detract from the book. And the editor, uh, God bless her, um, Emma Herdman uh, at Bloomsbury UK. So Emma went to, um, Emma actually emailed, contacted uh, Bexay separately. Like, oh, so our translator has this idea that your that we should keep your the lovers genderless in the book and it's possible to do it may be a little distracting in english but we can do it and we are totally okay with it what do you think 
And Bexay apparently immediately said, oh, let's do that. <laughs> so, oh, Bexay, like, she's a cool person. We love her. Yay, queer allyship. <laughs> Um, so this might be a spicy question, but, um, just like growing up reading, um, like seeing translated books, like on the shelves, usually they're translated by, I guess, like white translators or male translators. And I don't know if that's like still the case now, if like diasporan authors or, uh, diasporan translators or uh, third culture translators are getting more of those jobs now. But what are your thoughts on, I guess, not <laughs> translators who don't share that marginalized background? Representation in translating. Right? <laughs> yeah, representation in translating. Yes. It is very much the case. Um, I don't think anyone really commented on the fact that I was the only non-white translator shortlisted for the Booker Prize. And I think on the long list, there was one other Asian translator and then everyone else was white. I think that was the case. Um, so yeah, it's very unusual, especially in the UK. It's a bit better in America, I feel. But especially in the UK, it's very rare to find a non-white translator in any language. Um, Japanese has a huge problem where I feel like 99% of their translators are white. Um, Korean at least has, you know, Janet Hong, me, Sung Ryu, and, you know, Soje. Like, it has translators who are not white. The other problem, especially not, especially with Korean, uh, compared to other Asian diaspora, is that Koreans were not allowed to travel overseas for pleasure until, like, 1989 or something, I believe. And uh, you had to have a special permit from very Joseon Dynasty. But you had to have a special permit from the government to travel outside of Korea, from the Korean government to travel outside of Korea. So it was a huge privilege to live outside of Korea. And um, I feel like most Korean Americans kind of immigrated in the 80s and 90s. And so those kids that, that were born overseas haven't managed to grow up yet. And even if you are born in America, like in the 80s and 90s, there really wasn't much of an infrastructure um, for for those kids to lean on to learn the Korean language and to like, I mean, I, I feel like the Chinese have a bigger diaspora and a more diverse diaspora. Uh, and they, they may have more opportunities to pick up uh, the different Chinese languages. But Korean is, is a bit is a bit of a different. Um, I think to this day, there's less than there's there's fewer than two million Korean Americans. And uh, uh, in Korea. So yeah, it's um I think it's it's a confluence of these factors that kind of made it difficult. But now we have uh now we have um translators of color uh coming out from uh, in Korean. So that's that's really really great. I just remember um one of my first jobs out of college um was um was interpreting for this politician and one of the places we went to was LA. And I remember meeting this Korean American girl who like she was working on the LA side of the company and she was like perfectly bilingual and it was not just her language skills but also like just her manners because like you know we're we're like she's young and I'm I was young and like we're sitting at a separate table and then they start bringing out the food and they start serving us first and then she immediately goes oh no you have to serve that table first 
And then I was like, oh, so she she understands all of the Korean like norms, basically. And so at the end of the day, like at the end of our stay in LA, I was like, um, Gloria, I have to ask you, like, are you Korean? <laughs> like, <laughs> are you like Korean Korean? Did you grow up in Korea? Like, what is your deal? Because you're and she's like, oh, I, I immigrated when I was you know, I was in middle school. So she immigrated a bit later than and she wasn't born in America. But like, and I remember thinking back then, I was like, wow, so this is what the diaspora is like now. They're like perfectly bicultural, perfectly bilingual. And they're, you know, they're on it. They're smart. And and now when you look at um, young diaspora, uh, like Gen Z, uh, Korean Americans, especially, like they're very cognizant of anti-colonial issues and anti-imperialism. And like, they're just very smart and so well-educated. And, you know, they're, they're very interested in um, Korean culture and learning the language because like a lot of people like diaspora of my generation, they were kind of, there was a bit of self-hating going on. And, you know, there were, there were, and also they kind of did not have the access that, that kids now have. Like, you know, the internet was not as, as common as back then as now. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, and when I was growing up, I was always considered extremely unusual because I had this bilingual upbringing, like third culture kids, Korean third culture kids were were an extremely limited community. We all knew each other to the extent that we could like, we either all knew each other or we knew someone who knew someone. Now it's unthinkable. Now there are plenty of Korean kids growing up overseas who have no intention of immigrating, Um, like like the goose father phenomenon. But now, but that, started happening like in the late 90s so that generation is now starting to come into uh come of age and so i predict that the landscape will be very different uh, in the future but and they can no longer say things like oh only white people can translate or you know write in english or have english that's good enough to do translation or do creative writing and asian americans are like extremely successful when it comes to uh, literature like there's so many asian american writers especially korean american writers i mean there's so many great iconic korean american writers like Teresa hak jong cha like you know, alexander chi like there's so many so they can't say that to us anymore they can't say that koreans can't write or koreans can't win awards or so i think it's really really like i don't want to hear about it anymore <laughs> like i don't want to hear about like how i i'm not fit for this job because you know there's so many great people who look like me who are doing this, who are doing such a better job at this than I am. So yeah, the future is bright. Well, um, I think that's a, that, that's a wrap. We've been talking for <laughs> quite a long time and I'm sure we could go on forever, but um, thank you so much for uh, talking with us, Anton. It was really, I, I feel like I learned so much about <laughs> translation, which was such a mystery to me up until now. So thank you for sharing your uh, experiences and knowledge. Yeah. Um, do you have anything coming up that we should be aware of? So um, thank you so much for having me, Rira and Marvin. Um, I do have a bunch of stuff coming up. I have three books being published next year uh, in, in the Anglosphere. One is um, I Went to See My Father by Kyung Suk Shin. This is an extremely important novel about the Korean War. Koreans actually don't like talking about the Korean War because of things that South Koreans did in the Korean War. And yeah. <laughs> you will, yeah. Um, so Han Gang is coming out with a novel on the Korean War as well. Uh, I keep forgetting what the English title is going to be. It's like No Goodbyes or something. And, so, and, and that book is also... Uh, 
it's going to be quite impactful because that talks about things that South Koreans did in the Korean War that you know we're ashamed of, but we are very reluctant to talk about. So, so the Korean War and what South Koreans South Koreans did, like that's coming, like that's going to be a topic I, I feel. Um, so, so I went to see my father by Kyung Suk Shin. It's going to come out next year, uh, and also this really fun, uh, fun and very like anti-colonial science fiction book called um, Counterweight. Uh, written by Duna, that is going to uh, come out from Pantheon. Uh, and I may be going to Comic-Con San Diego next wow. year to, uh, to launch it. So I have to think of a costume. I have to think of funding <laughs> first. I don't know why I'm thinking of a costume first. Um, I'm gay, so costumes are important. Uh, and the third book that's coming out next year is uh, poet Lee Songbok's uh, Indeterminate Inflorescence. And this is a basically a how-to book on how to write poetry. Uh, it's written in like, you know, aphorisms. And this is like going to be my next nonfiction book. And I'm very excited about that. I'm hoping um, Lee Songbok will <laughs> let me translate his poems after this book. <laughs> um, so we're, we're hoping that like, you know, that book will do well. So yeah, those three books. Um, Counterweight by Duna, I Went to See My Father by Kyung Suk Shin, and Indeterminate Inflorescence by Lee Song Bo. Awesome. Well, good luck on all your future projects. Congratulations on, you know, um, the release of your this project. Um, I Want to Die, but I also want to eat the bookie. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, thanks for joining us on Books and Boba. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm also translating Ocean Vuong into Korean. Oh, so, oh my yeah, God. That's, yeah, that's so also cool. coming out next year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So yay, Asian Americans. Yeah, yeah, keep writing so that we have things yay. to translate. Thank you so much. Awesome. <laughs> and that was Anton Her, the English language translator for Beck Sehi's I Want to Die, But I Want to Eat Dakbuki. Available now at booksellers everywhere. And yeah, it's a really fun book and it's a really quick read too. So um, definitely if any of that conversation got you interested in the book, um, please check it out and definitely also check out some of Anton's other translated works as well. Yeah, um, I've heard some great things about Ora Chung's Cursed Bunny. Um, it's really nice that uh, Anton and other translators, they're getting to translate more contemporary works by younger authors <laughs> in Korea. And it's not just like capital L literature. There's also genre fiction that's coming out from there. So it's... Um, yeah, so I'm just glad that we have more access to that nowadays. Yeah. Before we go, uh, Rira, can you remind us what our book club pick is for the month of November? So we are reading Year of the Tiger, An Activist's Life by Alice Wong. Alice Wong is the founder and director of the Disability Visibility Project, and her book is a memoir that gives us a glimpse into her journey as an activist and also um, the continuing fight for disability justice. So we haven't read a nonfiction title in a while. I think our last one was um, Good Talk by Mira Jacobs, and that was a graphic memoir. So we are diving back into the field of nonfiction. Yeah. And it's actually funny that we're reading this after the whole because the whole features a disabled character. So Yeah, looking forward to discussing this book with you at the end of the month. Um, and to our listeners who have finished the book already and want to share their thoughts, um, please let us know on our Goodreads forums. Um, as always, we love to hear what you think and include your feedback on our podcast as well. 
Um, but on that note, um, thanks again to Ash and her for speaking with us this episode. And we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Mi Ryu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Bill Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, we've got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace.